This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We've got three more in this series, uh, Theological Boot Camp, three more. We've got the Holy Spirit today, and then we're going to close with two parts on the church. Now, we're, we're contemplating the Holy Spirit today. Some, uh, someday this is going to be an entire series because he deserves an entire series, but today is just going to be an introductory step into the third person of the Trinity. I've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get into it. Here are the questions we're looking at. We're looking at who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, and two overlooked questions. Okay, who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, and two overlooked questions regarding the Holy Spirit. First, who is the Holy Spirit? I'm going to be brief with this. There are two things I want to make sure that you've got under your belt. The first is this, the Holy Spirit is God. First thing, the Holy Spirit is God. Acts chapter 5, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, not, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter's response to Ananias is striking. He doesn't see Ananias' action as primarily lying to a human being, though he may have made verbal commitments to human beings. He sees the act as lying to God and the Holy Spirit. Most grammarians take verse 3 and verse 5 in parallel. That is to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not some underling within the Godhead. He is God. 1 Corinthians 3 sheds further light on this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In my view, this is even clearer. To be indwelled by the Holy Spirit is to be indwelled by God himself because the Holy Spirit is God. We also see the godness of the Holy Spirit and the attributes he has. First Corinthians chapter 2, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The conclusion of these verses is that the Holy Spirit possesses omniscience. The Holy Spirit searches and knows the depths of God's thoughts. In other words, the Holy Spirit goes where only God can go. Because the Holy Spirit is God, not some underling within the Godhead. That's first. Second, the Holy Spirit is a person. Person, not a force. Not an animation of God or a projection of God or anything less than a person. The word for spirit in Greek is in the neuter form. Masculine, feminine, neuter when it comes to grammar. 
Typically, when using a pronoun which replaces the noun, you use a pronoun that agrees with the noun and person number and gender. So if you don't use my name, Brian, instead you use a pronoun, he. When the biblical writers use pronouns to refer to the Holy Spirit, even, the, even though the Spirit is in the neuter form, they use the pronoun he, not it. Additionally, this is a, on a philosophical side of things, a person is a being who can say I, who can say I with self-reflexivity or self-awareness. Okay, here's what I mean by that. In the scriptures, God says I. An angel can say I. A human being can say I. With regard to the Trinity, we find that the Father says I and my at Jesus' baptism. Jesus says an emphatic I before the high priest at his trial. Likewise, the Holy Spirit says I and for me in the course of the church's choosing of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas for mission work in Acts chapter 13. So in philosophical terms, the Acts 13.2 text concerning the Holy Spirit exhibits first-person perspective, which is sufficient for, for personhood. So there's a grammatical reason to observe the Spirit as a person. There's a philosophical reason to observe the Spirit is a person. Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force like in Star Wars. That's not how we ought to think of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person with whom you can relate. And there's lots of depth that could be mined for gold there. Seeing the Holy Spirit as a person changes the way you relate to the Holy Spirit. So when you put these things together, the picture is quite amazing. The Holy Spirit is the personal, divine resident of the Christian's heart. The personal, divine resident of the Christian's heart. Second question, what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? We're going to look at two sections of New Testament text to unpack that. By far the longest sustained teaching in the scriptures on the Holy Spirit is found in John 14 and John 16. If you have your Bibles, open them there. John 14, to start, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17 and 25 and 26. John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, this is Jesus teaching, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. Jesus says the Father will give the disciples another helper. This is more evidence that the spirit is not a force but contains, possesses personhood just like the other helper who is Jesus. The Spirit is another helper, just like Jesus. So there's personhood to the Holy Spirit. What, is exactly, what does it exactly mean that the Spirit is our helper? Well, Jesus comes to unpack that in the verses that follow, both in chapter 14 and in uh, chapter 14 and chapter 16. What the helper does right away, given this idea that the helper is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is a 
an advocate for truth, communicator of truth. Now, what's interesting about this is that just a few verses earlier, Jesus himself referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. That has got to have stuck in the minds of the readers. This was the same chapter, chapter 14, verse 6. And now we're called the spirit of truth. This is the spirit's role to witness to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. This is the spirit of truth who is the witness to Jesus. This will become explicit in chapter 16. But what I want you to understand is this. The Holy Spirit is Jesus obsessed. There's a Christ-centeredness to the ministry of the spirit. That's his mission. To guide others, to move others, direct others into Jesus' obsession. Skip down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Father will send the Spirit in Jesus' name. This is interesting. This is very interesting. If the Holy Spirit is sent in Jesus' name, the Spirit is Jesus' emissary, not simply his substitute. Follow this with me. In John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus, the Son, was sent in the Father's name. Now the Spirit is sent in Jesus' name. Just as Jesus was the Father's emissary, so the Spirit is now Jesus' emissary. Jesus, the Son, was sent to reveal the Father. That's in John's Gospel, replete in John's writings. Jesus was sent to reveal the Father, to show you the Father. The Spirit is sent to reveal Jesus, to show you Jesus. And then he says, he will teach you all things Keep in mind, Jesus is teaching the disciples. He's teaching the 12. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's amazing. In my view, that explains why the New Testament is trustworthy. Right there. That's it. Circle it. Put a note on it. This is why the New Testament is trustworthy. Jesus sent his emissary, the Holy Spirit, to teach the disciples all things, and bring to their remembrance what? All that I have said to you. All that I have said to you. Now, only a fraction of the 12 wrote the New Testament, but they were the primary eyewitnesses that launched the movement. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to make sure your eyewitness accounts are spot on. So their eyewitness accounts are reliable, not just because... As a historical matter of fact, they were actually eyewitnesses to the event. Their, their eyewitness accounts are reliable because Jesus sent the Spirit to make sure that they can recall to remembrance everything he said. This is why you can trust the book. You can trust the book. Flip over to chapter 16. Chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Jesus is still talking to the 12. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit has a ministry of conviction. More than one commentator has used the imagery of a prosecuting attorney to describe the work of the Spirit. I think that's a good image to work with for the following reason. The word convict is used 18 times in the New Testament, and in every instance it has to do with showing someone his sin, usually as a summons to repentance. Or to put this differently, Jesus is saying that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring someone to acknowledgement of personal guilt before God. So if you at some point in your past felt guilt over your sin against God, repented of it, and through your trust in Christ, that experience was the work of the Holy Spirit. If there's someone in your life for whom your heart breaks because this has never happened, in their life, pray to the Holy Spirit to convict them of personal guilt. Pray to the Holy Spirit to summons them to repentance. This is the work of the Spirit. Let's keep going. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth, there it is again, Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now watch this. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, I take that to be, whatever he hears within the tripersonal community of God, the Godhead, whatever he hears, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. He The Holy Spirit will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in verse 13, Jesus almost reiterates what he's already said in chapter 14, verse 26. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to guide the disciples into all truth. Again, remember... Jesus is the truth. So there's a Christ-centeredness about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He does not come with an alternative body of revelation. He does not come and speak things independently of what the Father or the Son have already declared. The Holy Spirit is about convicting people of their need for Christ and moving them towards him in repentance and faith. Now, there's one last thing Jesus says about the ministry of the Spirit in this section of text. Jesus says what? He will glorify me. The Spirit comes to glorify me, Jesus. The Holy Spirit's ministry is about making much of Jesus. The late Jim Packer illustrates it this way. He writes, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words 
he shall glorify me. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way, Packer continues. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. This is the ministry of the Spirit. Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart there to convict and there to keep our eyes trained on Jesus. So a couple of more New Testament passages that have some teaching on the Holy Spirit. One I'm going to save for our Too Hot to Handle series, Spiritual Gifts. The other one is Galatians 5, a very familiar passage for those of you who have been around the church. Galatians chapter 5, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read it. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now before we dive into this, let me sum up where we've come so far. The ministry of the Spirit is a floodlight ministry to bring glory to Christ, to get you to see Jesus, to, to have your attention drawn to Jesus. That's the ministry of the Spirit. ministry of the Spirit is Christ-centered, Jesus-obsessed. His ministry isn't about drawing attention to himself. Additionally, the ministry of the Spirit is convictional. He brings people under the conviction of their sin before God, their guilt before God, and summons them to repentance. Here in Galatians 5, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry of Christian change. I know Pastor John talked about this last week. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. But this is where the topics of sanctification and the Holy Spirit intersect. So it's worth mentioning a few things. What does Christian change look like? There are very interesting attributes, aspects to Christian change that are brought out in Paul's use of the term fruit. It's a very interesting choice of words. There are other words available to him at this point. He could have used words like traits or characteristics or qualities. He uses the word fruit. It's very interesting. 
And in so doing, he's trying to communicate meaning to us. In fact, the word fruit is really loaded with it. It's a botanical metaphor that brings a botanical dimension to understanding how people change. Let me mention four quickly. First is this, change is gradual. Christian change is as gradual as growing an apple tree. If you stand two inches away from a little sapling of a tree, you will not be able to see it growing. You can't touch it and feel it grow in your hands. Uh, You might have an adolescent boy who grows six inches in a single year. Even if you did, you would not be able to stand two inches from him and see him growing. The boy won't even actually feel himself growing. This kind of growth doesn't happen overnight. So when it comes to Christian change, patience is the word of the day. That's hard to do in a wireless drive-through on-off switch world where we can get what we want right away. Christian change is not an issue of simply downloading an app to your phone. It takes time. This is the way the ministry of the Spirit works. Ministry of the Spirit is to bring about change in your life, but it's slow. Second, change is inevitable. This is not just fruit. This is fruit of the Spirit of God. Fruit of the Spirit of God. Change is guaranteed. If you have the Spirit of God in you, there will be change. You will become more loving. You will become gentler. You will become more self-controlled. Change is inevitable. So let me combine these two. If change is gradual and yet it's inevitable, how do you know it's happening? How do you know it's happening in your life? Two suggestions. Number one, ask your friends. Go ask your friends. Uh, People who know you. People will know you. Ask them. Hey, have you seen change in my life over the last five years? Ask them. Change isn't something you can, you can physically see or feel. You have to measure it in some way. And the best way to determine if there's been Christian change happening in you is to ask those around you. Ask those who know you best. Another way to measure it is to test it. You have to measure it. You've got to test it. How does a sprinter know she's gotten faster? She measures it. She uses a stopwatch, measures the time. She may not feel faster than she was a year ago, but the stopwatch may tell her she is faster. So how do you measure Christian change? You've got to, you have to get tested. You have to get tested. Remember a year ago when life got tough and you were pretty anxious, stressed out, but this year life got tough again and you didn't react like that? You were at peace even though life was messy That's growth. That's growth. That's change. The change the Spirit initiates in the life of the believer is inevitable. Third, change is internal. Change is internal. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Notice those nine things that were listed. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Is it leadership? Is it counseling? Managing? Editing? Dancing? Singing? Woodworking? Uh, Is the fruit of the Spirit intelligence? IQ? Charisma? There's a difference between external and internal growth. Growing in leadership, management, intelligence, and charisma is external growth. Christian change is internal growth. There's a difference between growing a pile of bricks and growing an apple tree. 
You can grow a pile of bricks by throwing more bricks on the pile. But that kind of growth is not from within. It's external. When an apple tree grows, it becomes more complex. It changes from inside. It grows from within. Christian change is more like growing an apple tree than growing a pile of bricks. Fourth, change is all or nothing. Change is all or nothing. This is a bit more difficult to get our minds around, so uh, hang with me here. A lot of people have observed that the word fruit, even though it's difficult to uh, see that in English, is singular. The word fruit in the original is singular. It's not plural. Uh, But there's a whole list behind it. There's a list of nine things behind it. So it's a single piece of fruit comprised of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. By doing this, Paul is trying to show something incredibly important about real Christian change. All of these go together. They are one. They are one. Let me try to illustrate this. Jonathan Edwards dedicated a whole chapter on this subject in one of his books, and the chapter is called Christian Graces Concatenated Together. You can look that word up later. Christian graces concatenated together. And as you read Edward's treatment of this, he argues that when there is one, there is all. And when you're missing one, you're missing all. Where there's one, there's all. When you're missing one, you're missing all. So if real Christian change is happening in your life, all of these are growing and getting better, not just one or the other. It's a single piece of fruit, and you either have it or you don't. Now let's test that. A lot of people think they have self-control. But what creates self-control is joy. The reason people get addicted to things is because they don't have any joy. They go looking for it. And they find that this thing over here, that gives me a little bit of joy while I'm indulging it. But then I find I have to indulge that more and more and more and more. Life becomes too much. You start sinking, looking for some relief. But real joy keeps you buoyant in the middle of tough times. Real joy is the thing that fuels self-control. You really can't have one without the other. Not genuinely. Or consider another one. Let's, let's think about peace and gentleness. Peace and gentleness, which is better translated as meek or humble. Peace and humility. If you're a very proud person but seem to be at peace, that's counterfeit peace. Why? What is peace? Peace is a lack of worry, anxiety, anger. Peace is a lack of those things. If worry, anxiety, anger isn't a problem for you, But pride is, that's a counterfeit peace. How can you say that? Well, how can that be? Peace that is spiritual peace comes from humility. Worry, anxiety, and anger are arrogance. They're arrogance. Worry in the Bible is always a refusal to maintain a humble posture before God. Always. 
Worry is always, anxiety is always a refusal to maintain a humble posture before God. Take a look at James chapter four. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go do this or go to that city, spend a year there. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. See, anybody who worries thinks they know. (laughs) Anybody who worries thinks they know. Someone who's filled with anxiety is someone who is sure they know how things are supposed to go. That's arrogance. That's pride. Peace and humility go together. Real peace is always connected to humility. So you see how all of them rise and fall together. Christian change is gradual, inevitable, internal, and it's all or nothing. This is the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me conclude with this. I'm going to conclude with two overlooked questions. This will be fun. Two overlooked questions. Let me give you the two questions. The first question is, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? And the second question is, how does the Holy Spirit fill us? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Maybe some of you aren't familiar with that language, so let me take you to the, to the scripture passage that is talking about this. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." That's the context in which Paul is raising the issue of grieving the Holy Spirit. So Paul's command not to grieve the Holy Spirit falls into that part of Ephesians dealing with the lifestyle that comports with God's call for unity in the church. What we're going to see is that grieving the Holy Spirit is something a church can do if individuals in the church lack this type of morality which contributes to unity. Let's be clear about that. Grieving the Holy Spirit is something a church can do. Graham Cole writes this. He says, in negative terms, we grieve the Holy Spirit by lying, giving place to the devil, stealing, speaking corruptly, showing bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and malice. In positive terms, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit when we speak truth with our neighbor, are angry but do not sin with it, work and use the product of our labor to do good to the needy, use speech to edify and impart grace to our hearers, are kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Now keep in mind, Paul's words are directed to Christians particular Christians in a local church, like Alliance Bible Church. In this case, it was the church in Ephesus. Grieving the Holy Spirit happens or doesn't happen based on how we treat one another in the church. If you take away nothing from this, let it be this, one thing. What Paul is showing is the cumulative effect 
of individual relationships on the overall unity of the church. That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to show you the cumulative effect of individual relationships, individual relationships, on the overall unity of the church. Now let me expound three ideas that Paul conveys to us and their contributing power to unity or grieving the Holy Spirit. The first is anger. He says, be angry, but do not sin. If we're really being honest, we're not all that good at this. In fact, most of the anger we feel is not righteous to begin with. So Paul is zeroing in on this. He's saying anger is the emotion that gives the devil opportunity to influence your life. Anger, more than any other emotion, makes you vulnerable to the devil's schemes. You know what the voice of anger says? If we bring God to bear on it, my anger makes a comment about God. The voice of anger says, I knew how my life was supposed to go, and God didn't get it right. It's the voice of anger. I knew how my life was supposed to go. I knew how life was supposed to go in general. And God messed it up. Do you hear the pride underneath there? I know. I know. I know. Angry people are proud people. They know it all. Humble people are anger-resistant people. Anger at fellow Christians grieves the Holy Spirit. Second, work ethic. This is interesting. Industriousness contributes to the unity of the church because it extinguishes temptations to cut corners, cheat, lie, and produces opportunity for generosity. So my exhortation to you is work hard. Use your time well. Work hard. Work hard. Make money. Be generous. Laziness produces fertile soil for grieving the Holy Spirit. Third is language. There's so much in Paul's description in that section of text that interfaces with language. Now, words are a good gift from God. The question is, do you use them well? The best words are in the book, (laughs) right? The best words, the best words are in the book. Do you use the gift of words to communicate and faithfully represent these words? Our use of words is a catalyst for either grieving the Holy Spirit or keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, if I had my druthers, I would love to see Christians worldwide for one month, make every social media post scripture and only scripture. 
a stretch? You might say, well, if I did that, my unbelieving friends would think I'm a lunatic. Respectfully, if that would cause them to think you're a lunatic, it betrays they already think God is. And if you love your friends, that's the problem that must be fixed. And you can't fix that by hiding God from them. If Jesus himself was to speak with one of your friends, you know what he would say? Everything he would say to them would be scripture. Because every word that comes from the mouth of Jesus is the word of God. On social media, Christians need to be giving one another and the world the most life-giving, heart-invigorating, mind-healing words possible. And those are found in the book. So Christian, take me up on that. One month, post only scripture. Why not flood the world with the most powerful words that exist? God's. How do we grieve the spirit? Grieving the spirit is something Christians do. It's something Christians in churches do. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we engage in behavior with one another that degrades the unity of the church. So don't underestimate the cumulative effect of individual relationships on the unity of the church. And now would be a good time to think through how are my relationships with individual Christians in the church? How are they? If there's a fracture in any of them, go talk to them. Second question, how does the Holy Spirit fill us? Let me again give you the context for the passage that creates the question. Ephesians chapter five, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a similarity and a contrast here. When one is drunk, they are under the influence of alcohol. But Paul says Christians are to be under the influence of the Spirit. Now, the command to be filled with the Spirit is a present imperative. So the sense of it is that there will be a continual infilling of the Spirit or multiple fillings of the Spirit. It's here I want to briefly pause and differentiate between what Paul's talking about here and what happens at our conversion. Let me give you a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The way in which Paul phrases the question begs the answer. The Galatian Christians received the Spirit by hearing with faith. You received the Spirit when you became a true follower of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Spirit when you believed at conversion. So on the one hand, 
Believers become the temple of the Holy Spirit at their conversion. When you become a Christian, you became the dwelling place of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is talking about here in the Ephesians passage is different. Let me walk through it with you. The command to be filled with the Spirit is passive, which means the action is done to you. It's done to you. It's not something you do per se. If the verb was active, it would have the sense of you go fill up. But it's passive. Be filled. It's not something you do for yourself. No action is called for on our part. It's be filled. It's passive. Now, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Context rules the day. The following five ING words, which are adverbial participles, explain how one can be continually filled with the Spirit. Brass tacks. I believe if we gathered body of believers, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make melody to the Lord with all our hearts, give thanks always to God for everything, submit to one another, we will create the conditions needed to be continually filled with the Spirit. So both attitude and activity are involved. Attitude, thankfulness, reverence, Activity, speaking, singing, making melody, submitting. The command is extended to the church at large, not to individual Christians. To be continually filled with the Spirit, in other words, is communal. Now, I don't know how it all works. The Western world has wired us to believe only that which can be tangibly measured. This can't be. But it's what the text teaches So I'm okay with it. I don't know how it all works. But it is what the text teaches. So if that's true, you see yet another important reason God instituted the church gathering and assigned profound meaning and value to it. The church gathering is ultimately about your spiritual well-being and spiritual longevity. This is not a box to check off. You come here to contribute spiritual good to others and you come here to receive spiritual good from others. By the way, this is one of the many reasons my heart is heavy for those not able to be here these days and why I'm praying the Lord removes the obstacles that prevent people from being here because we all need this. In moral philosophy, there's a fallacy called the hedonistic fallacy. It's simply this. Pursue pleasure and you won't get it. Pursue pleasure directly and you won't get it because pleasure is a byproduct of other pursuits. I think the idea fits well here. Pursue being filled with the Spirit and you will not get it. Because being filled with the Spirit is a byproduct of other pursuits. If we fill up our gatherings with these practices, we will be the temple of the Lord Jesus. This is one of the many reasons why Lone Ranger Christianity is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. We are dependent on one another for this. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that through 
The spirit you have continued the ministry Jesus started. We are not at a disadvantage because Jesus doesn't walk among us as he did in the first century. For those who at the name of Jesus have bowed the knee have done so through the ministry of the spirit. For those who have come under the convictional weight of their sin against you have done so because of the spirit's ministry. For those who have seen their hearts and minds captivated with your son have done so because your spirit is working mightily. And so we pause to plead with you to unleash your spirit into a lost world that desperately needs to have the gravity of their sin against you powerfully impressed upon them. We plead with you to arrest the imaginations of those impressed with other things so they may find Jesus supremely alluring. We pray these things for the sake of the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.